hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. I've got some arranging to do up here. I think that's going to stay. Well, today we have uh, another sermon from the Sermon on the Mount. We continue in a series of sermons that I've entitled Life in the Kingdom. Life in the Kingdom of God. And today we're going to talk about anger. This is a tough uh, passage of Scripture. We'll get to it in a moment. But first I want to just back up and talk about how the Sermon on the Mount should affect us as we study and we reflect on it. Uh, Somebody has said that the Sermon on the Mount is a terrible sermon. A terrible sermon. Not, of course, in terms of quality. Uh, Jesus is a master teacher. This is a brilliant sermon, but it's terrible in terms of uh, what it provokes in us, the fear of God. It's, it's terrifying because Jesus is teaching such a high standard of righteousness. It's so great that all of us, I think, if we take seriously the Sermon on the Mount, can say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, no, not even one. This is a very high standard of righteousness. So one of the things that the Sermon on the Mount should do is humble us and convince us of our need for the grace of God, our need for forgiveness. The the Sermon on the Mount should draw us to the cross of Christ. Again, if we take it seriously, what Jesus teaches us here. But the Sermon on the Mount should also draw us It's a picture of a Christ-like life. And anybody who has the Spirit of Christ, which is any Christian, wants to be more like Jesus Christ. And so we have in the Sermon on the Mount an illustration of what the life of Christ is like, of true righteousness, the righteousness of the heart. Jesus says in verse 20, and this is a key verse, for I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a key verse for our passage today, and really for the rest of chapter 5 in Matthew. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is showing us what real righteousness is as opposed to just religious righteousness external righteousness. The the, the scribes and the Pharisees were very good at external righteousness, but Jesus was constantly critiquing them for that. He says in Matthew 23, he calls the scribes and Pharisees whitewashed tombs. He says, you look clean on the outside, look good on the outside, like a whitewashed tomb, but on the inside there's spiritual death, there's corruption, there's hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Jesus, again, is always making the distinction between exterior righteousness and the righteousness of the heart, and that's what he's calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount, internal righteousness. It's easy, fairly easy to look religiously righteous. You just kind of go through the motions, you you say the prayers, you show up to church, you look good on the exterior, but the issue is what's going on inside. You know, these past weeks I've been admiring the skill of the construction workers in our building the electricians, the the contractors, the carpenters. 
And, you know, I suppose I could show up to a construction site with a, with a hard hat and a tool belt and look the part. But I tell you, the moment they ask me to do something, the moment they ask me to build something, I'm going to be exposed <laughs> for the fraud that I am. Once I, I, I built a doghouse, that's as far as I've gone in terms of carpenter, carpentry skill. And I have to say that it kind of looks like I took inspiration from the Leaning Tower of Pisa, the way it turned out. <laughs> So I have some work to do. But you can't just look the part to do what's required of you. You need to have the knowledge within. And Jesus is saying, if you want to live this kind of life, you have, there's something's got to happen to you on the inside. There needs to be a transformation of the heart. Real righteousness means a, a relationship with God. It entails a relationship with God and living under His rule and under His reign. So that's what... Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount. Who are we on the inside? So let's look at what Jesus says then about anger. Anger. Look at what he says in verses 21 through 22. Again, he's, what he's doing in this section of Scripture, and it, and it goes throughout chapter 5, is he's taking an Old Testament law and he's showing how the righteousness of the law goes deeper than many people thought and many of the teachers of his day taught. It's a matter of what's going on inside. It's a matter of the heart. So, verse 21, he says this. Let's look at the teaching that he gives us about anger. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Old Testament law. He's not setting that aside. It's still is relevant, it still applies today, you shall not murder, but then he goes deeper. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. You see what Jesus is teaching here? I think it's pretty plain. It's pretty clear. It's, it's, again, it's, it's terrifying if, if you take this seriously, but this is what Jesus is saying, that anger, the kind of anger that leads a person to contempt and to say contemptible things about another person is in the sight of God, like murder. It's murder committed in the heart, and it's liable to the judgment of God. That's what the teaching is here. Very strong, very sobering teaching that Jesus is giving here. So to say, uh, for example, to say um, you fool to somebody is a, is a contemptible expression which basically means you're a godless person. You're spiritually worthless. Uh, to back up a little bit, whoever insults his brother, he says, will be liable to the council. The Greek there, the original language, is whoever says raka to his brother, which is like saying, um, it's, a, it's an insult, it's like saying you're stupid, you're a worthless person, will be liable to the council. Now, there's different ways to interpret this passage. Uh, some people interpret this to say that Jesus is talking about different degrees of sin here, and, and corresponding degrees of punishment, but I really don't think that's what Jesus is doing here. I don't think Jesus is, is talking about degrees of sin. He's talking about the issue of the heart, the matter of the heart, what's going on inside. 
And I think all these different scenarios in verse 22 are describing essentially the same thing in different ways. Anger that produces contempt is like murder and is subject to judgment, ultimately the judgment of God. So that's the teaching. Do we understand what the teaching is? Again, tough stuff. High standard. And again, all of us reading this and thinking about it should say, we need the grace of God because we've been angry with, with people and we've, we've slandered people, if not verbally in our hearts. So we need the cleansing forgiveness of God in our life. But we need to do something else. We need to take steps towards reconciliation if we have anger in our hearts towards another person. And Jesus says we need to do that before we worship. You see, it's an urgent matter that we take steps to reconciliation. I'm not talking about just being irritated with somebody or not liking somebody or disagreeing with somebody. I think what we're talking about here is having a grievance with somebody holding a grudge against somebody. Is there somebody in your life, and particularly in the church, notice how often he mentions brother. This is about a community, a family. Is there somebody in your life or in the church that you have a grievance with? That, that you say, when I think about that person, I, I'm not going to, there's no good thoughts that come to my mind. There's a barrier there, a relational barrier. I don't want to talk to them. Maybe you've talked about them and slandered them. If there's if somebody like that in your life, and particularly within the body of Christ, you, you have to do something here, and Jesus teaches us what to do. That is, move towards reconciliation. Take steps towards reconciliation. And so let's look at what he says. But before we do that, I just want to say one other thing here. I've... We've all probably seen this. We've lived long enough to see how anger can corrupt. Corrupts relationships in the family, harms marriages. When it goes unchecked in churches, it can destroy the spiritual climate of a church. It can be a block. It can be a hindrance to what God wants to do in, in the life of the church. So this is a serious issue. But the most, some of the most damage that's done if you're angry, is done to yourself. Okay? Listen to what uh, Frederick Buchner says about the effects of ang- anger. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the, to the last twosome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you're wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. I can't look into anybody's heart here, and I'm not preaching this because I think that there's problems in our church with this issue, with relational tension or grievances. I don't know. Only God knows our heart. But I wonder if there's somebody here, if there are people here gnawing on their anger, destroying their souls in the process. Are you harboring bitterness in your heart towards somebody? You have to do something about that. And Jesus says, before worship, there needs to be reconciliation. This is an urgent matter. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember 
that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Imagine this in the Jewish context. That means if you've traveled all the way to Jerusalem and you've gotten to the temple in Jerusalem and you're getting ready to, pre to present your, your sacrifice, your sin offering, and you remember that there's somebody that has something against you or you have something against them, there's this relational tension, you need to walk away from the sacrifice, leave Jerusalem, and go back and be reconciled to them before you engage in worship. Before you come into church, before you sing the hymns, before you offer your tithes, before you come to Holy Communion, which is a symbol of our unity as the body of Christ, as we take the body and the, the bread of Christ and the cup of salvation, symbolizing our unity, before that, make sure that you're unified. If we have a grudge against somebody, we need to go to them. Notice that Jesus says, though, if you know somebody has something against you, go to them. So if we know somebody has a grievance against us, even if it's not really in our minds or our way of thinking a rational grievance, we need to try to clear the air with them. Dan Doriani in his commentary explains it like this, if it is good for us to refrain from murder and murderous attitudes, then it is also good to prevent murderous attitudes in others if possible. We should love our brothers and sisters enough to act to remove their murderous disposition towards us. It's our responsibility. We can't guarantee that there will be reconciliation. We're just responsible to be obedient to the teaching of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 12, 18, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. As far as is possible, as much as it depends on you, you do what you can do and leave the rest to God. So, so this is a radical, obviously difficult demand that Jesus puts before us but I wonder, and I've, as, I, as I've worked through this, I've had to think, are there relationships, are there conversations that I need to have this week? I've had those kind of conversations before. They're difficult, they're humbling, but they're necessary. Are there people in my life that, that, that I'm harboring anger and bitterness towards needs to be dealt with? Are there people in my life that I know are at odds with, with me? I need to try to clear the air. Let me give you uh, five reasons. I, I have an outline here I forgot to mention, but if you might want to take this out, this little outline, this insert here. And uh, this is why I normally don't put inserts into the bulletins, because usually I, I change something last minute as I, as I go through it again. <laughs> and I had four reasons to pursue reconciliation. I added one more. Let's just kind of wrap this up here to bring everything to a head. Five reasons to pursue reconciliation. And then I put at the bottom here some, a resource from peacemaker.net. So I wanted to give you some, something to take with you. This is a great website to go to that will help you pursue godly reconciliation in your relationships. So again, if somebody has come to mind, as I've been talking about this, as we've been listening to the words of Jesus, if somebody's come to mind, my suggestion is that you pray, that you go to peacemaker.net and you read the material that they have on reconciliation and forgiveness. And I've listed some things there that they've, they've said about forgiveness, okay. But, but go to that website. But let me just give you the five reasons to pursue reconciliation, just to kind of bring everything together, okay. Number one, 
avoid religious hypocrisy, to avoid religious hypocrisy, to avoid the attitude of the Pharisees, the, 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 the trap of the Pharisees, which is to go through religious motions to look good on the outside, but on the inside there's spiritual corruption. Number two, to heed the clear warning of Jesus you can't bring an angry and hate-filled heart into heaven. That's what he's saying here. You'll be liable to the judgment of God. The same judgment as a murderer, if there's murder and anger and hate in your heart. Number three, anger corrupts your own soul. You're eating yourself alive spiritually. Number four, anger towards another person in the body of Christ harms the body of Christ. In our passage from 1 Corinthians, Paul reminds the Corinthians, uh, this is a church that's filled with division and strife, and reminds them that you are God's field, you are God's building, you are God's property. Don't hinder what God is trying to grow and build in the church through your divisions. And finally, our motivation should be based on what God has done for us to bring us peace, to reconcile us to Him. That's the primary motivation. When I realize what God has done for me at the cross, that I was an enemy of God, that I was turned away from God, but yet He gave His own Son and spilt the blood of His own Son so that I could be reconciled with Him, that motivates me to be reconciled to others, to forgive them. I like the story of the great evangelist George Whitfield. Uh, maybe I've shared this before, but a lady wrote a letter to him telling him what an awful person he was, what an awful minister he was. This was a great evangelist. And so she had this itemized letter, this itemized list. She just let him have it. And he responded like this. He said, I thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying about me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. In other words, listen, if we know who we are in Christ, if we take time to reflect on our own sin and our own need for forgiveness, we know things about ourselves that are worse than probably what other people... People don't know our thoughts, what's going on inside of us, but God does. And the God who knows us that well has forgiven us and loves us and cleanse, cleanses us. And so if we realize that, that motivates us to release other people, to be merciful and to forgive. Don't delay doing what Jesus says to do. That's the other point I didn't get to, but there's a sense of urgency about this, isn't there? If you're going to the court, Jesus says, if you're going to a human court, on your way, you try to settle your matter because, the matter because you don't want to be condemned by the judge. How much more should you be urgent about this because one day we're all going to face the heavenly court? Don't delay. As a church, let's not be satisfied with mere external righteousness. Let's let God deal with us on the inside so that by His grace, we can be more like Jesus and we can reflect that in our relationships with others. Let's, let's, let's pray. Let's take a moment just to maybe let this soak in. I know it's been hard teaching, but what...
Christ commands us to do, He gives us the grace to do.